Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with a personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series will discuss the new Academy course on primary immune deficiency disorders. We are very pleased to welcome Dr. Nicholas Ryder, who is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics in the Department of Allergy and Immunology at Texas Children's Hospital and Baylor College of Medicine located in Houston, Texas. Dr. Ryder's academic career has focused on improving our understanding of how to accurately diagnose and better treat primary immune deficiency disorders. Dr. Ryder's namesake lab, the Ryder Lab, is the Computational Human Immunology Lab and Innovation Hub, also known as CHILI, and has a unique focus in using computational and informatic techniques to improve the early diagnosis of primary immune deficiency. Lastly, Dr. Ryder was a member of the steering committee for the course that we'll be discussing today. And with that, Dr. Ryder, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us, and welcome to the show. Hi, Dr. Stukas. Great to be here with you. Thanks for the invite. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think this is going to be a really helpful conversation for our listeners, and I, I, it'll be interesting to hear some of the background and, and what to expect from the course. But I'd like to start by discussing the full name of the course. Okay, it's a mouthful. The full name of this course is Providing Enhanced Medical Support for Patients with Primary Immunodeficiency Disorders, a Patient-Guided Intervention to Ensure Patient Engagement During a Global Pandemic and Beyond. Whew. Clearly, the Academy wasn't paying by the letter for this title. So with, with that mouthful of a title, which I think is great, if I gave you, say, 30 seconds to summarize what this course offers, uh, can you give me that elevator pitch right now? Absolutely, Dave. This is a really exciting educational offering. Um, that it was a joint collaboration from the Quad AI, AxDev, and the Immune Deficiency Foundation. It really focuses on... Um, dynamic adult learning um, practices that are case-based with an intent to really reduce uh, the time from symptom onset to diagnosis for patients with immunological disorders. Did you practice that by any chance? You You know, know, actually, I I didn't, honestly. Wow. That's great. (laughs) Definitely less than 30 seconds. Okay. Well, so tell us a little bit more. How did this even come about? What was sort of the original um, impetus for designing a course such as this? So, you know, I have to admit, uh, Dr. Kate Sullivan, uh, as we know, is just a, a tremendous leader in uh, the field of allergy immunology, especially uh, patients with, you know, f- advocating and caring for and driving forward n- forth knowledge for patients with inborn errors of immunity. It was really um, the, one of the first people to come up with this concept uh, in partnership with Quad AI, IDF, and AxDev. And so I think, you know, many of us in the field of allergy immunology focus on these patients with rare diseases, um, you know, or thought to be rare diseases, in particular prior immune deficiency, otherwise known as inborn errors of immunity. You know, Kate, uh, Dr. Sullivan certainly was concerned about, um, you know, the time to diagnosis and wanted to put together a really interactive um, and engaging educational 
offering that anyone could access from anywhere in the world to improve uh, understanding of the, the pre presenting signs and symptoms of patients with, uh, with immunological disorders. And I think it just grew from there. So she, she chaired um, our steering committee and then uh, a number of us were added over time before we kicked off as a group. So it was really that, that impetus around, you know, uh, showcasing um, both the patient's voice in this process and how patients um, have experienced encumbrances and pain points within the healthcare system uh, prior to getting diagnosis, um, as well as just um, calling out that need for, for earlier diagnosis. Mm. If you can give us a ballpark estimate, what, what year do you think all this started? How long have you been working on this? So this was pretty impressive. I, I got to say, um, you know, and I, I'm going to give kudos, especially to Elizabeth Hoffman and Ellen Price, who uh, really are pretty focused on um, e-learning, electronic learning uh, at the academy. They ran a tight ship and, and kept us from kickoff, literally from kickoff to launching the content on the Quad AI website was a year. It was 12 months. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. So and that included getting the, the survey data. Um, getting the, the, the patient surveyed through the Immune Deficiency Foundation. So huge kudos to the IDF uh, for really having um, access uh, to patients with primary immune deficiency and being mm. able to reach them quickly. Um, so all of that took place within 12 months. It was a very tight timeline. It was very ambitious, but it actually happened. So I was very pleasantly surprised. Oh, I, I think it's really impressive. I thought for sure you were going to say it was you know four to five years in the making. Um, that's really impressive. And you touched upon this, and I think it's truly fascinating that you surveyed patients with primary immune deficiency disorders to learn more about how medical professionals can support them. Can you share with us some of the major take-home messages revealed through those survey results? Absolutely. So, um, you know, again, going through the Immune Deficiency Foundation, um, we carefully constructed a survey, um, really, again, to ascertain the patient's voice in this process. Um, and we had over 300 respondents um, to the survey. And some of that is actually quite humbling to, to hear these things as a healthcare provider. Um, but, you know, I think they're, on some level they're not surprising, but it's still really good to hear. And it's also important to hear. And the data, I think, is quite telling. So, so first and foremost, um, patients definitely note that they are languishing with symptoms for a prolonged period of time before ultimately getting diagnosed. And in particular, our survey. Uh, respondents, 41% uh, reported that it took over 21 years from time of onset of mm -hmm. symptoms till they received a final diagnosis and could actually have, you know, really rational treatment um, planning in place because they now had a diagnosis. So that was, that was sobering. Mm -hmm. um, and then you know, almost 60% um, noted that they were initially diagnosed with a different disorder, um, sometimes something more common. Um, like like allergy or even just, you know, kind of a, a bacterial viral infection that was not attributed to another underlying global immune deficiency or, or things like inflammatory bowel disease. So it sounds like that um, those are big take-home messages of people having symptoms and suffering for 
over a couple of decades on average, and then really bouncing around, it sounds like, in, until they found that proper diagnosis. So along those lines, can you just give us some background regarding primary immune deficiency? I know that's a, that's a huge topic and we could spend hours talking about it, but what types of conditions does this encompass and what are some of the ways that it impacts patients? Yeah, great question. Um, so, you know, and we've a little bit moved from the term primary immune deficiency to IEI or inborn errors of immunity. Um, I think they're still both very valuable terms. But the reason for the shift toward inborn error of immunity is because with with each passing, it seems like month, there's a new disorder that's, that's described. Um, and I think, you know, again, kudos to my colleagues who, you know, fervently, um, you know, and passionately proceed to understand the biological basis of, of, you know, the patient's conditions. And so we're learning more and more that, you know, these errors of immunity don't just present with uh, recurrent infections, but often it's um, abnormal uh, patterns of inflammation or uh, early onset of, of conditions that are thought to be common, like inflammatory bowel disease, but maybe presenting in a young child would be, you know, heralding the sign of a, a single gene uh, monogenic disorder. So at now, as of um, the last IUIS or Immunological Union of Immunological Societies report, which comes out about every year or two, there are over 430 distinct molecularly defined uh, primary immune deficiency or inborn errors of immunity. So, uh, and 20% of the patients that present with an IEI are adults. So we see presentation across the age range, um, really no uh, organ is spared. And we're really looking for patterns of either severe, frequent, or unusual infection or inflammation in these patients. Hmm. So really having a high index of suspicion uh, and just staying up to date with all of this, it, it sounds like things have really evolved dramatically over the last several years and decades in regards to this. So along those lines, how has the diagnosis of inborn errors of immunity evolved over the past decade or so? Well, some some good news on two two fronts. One, you know, there's still no substitutes. It sounds really um, Pollyannish, but you know, there's really no substitute for a good history and physical exam. And I think that mm. that was another finding actually from from our survey that um, patients noted that um, they perceived really that over forty percent um, felt like healthcare providers really didn't ask enough about the full range of their symptoms. I mean, kind of really explore so. You know, a good history and physical exam that is suggestive of either, again, really frequent infections, severe infections, or unusual infections, or inflammation is vital. And then, um, actually, we a number of us uh, put out a document, uh, a toolkit document uh, that was published in Jackie in Practice um, earlier this year um, for really focused on best practices for diagnosing patients with IEI across the IUIS categories. So starting with just a routine CBC with differential and immunoglobulins and assessment of immunoglobulin quantity as well as quality uh, in terms of vaccine responses, and then proceeding to maybe some more specialized testing, um, which is available. And ultimately, genetic diagnosis has um, revolutionized the diagnosis of inborn error immunity, uh, both in um, the informatics that's, that's, uh, that's deployed there, um, as well as the number of testing companies that offer um, whole exome, whole genome sequencing, or panels uh, that are specific for patients with immunological disorders. So that, that's really revolutionized diagnosis. 
Well, I think you've done a nice job setting the stage for why it's important to sort of stay up to date and learn more about this, as well as the, the background as to how this course came to be. So let's dive into some of the specifics regarding this online course that's now available. Who's the target audience? So this is really any healthcare provider. Um, we really focused intentionally on um, allergist immunologists, but also our colleagues in primary care, primary care clinicians, um, advanced practice, practice providers, such as physician assistants, uh, nurse practitioners, and our fellows in training. So, you know, we really wanted to, um, as well as our nursing colleagues, we really wanted to make sure that this, this course was going to be valuable uh, to anyone who may come in contact with patients with immunological disorders. Mm. And where can people find the course online? So this is um, hosted on the Quad AI website under the educational offerings. So if you go to education.quadai.org, um, you'll see a number of different disorders. If you click on the immunodeficiency link, you'll see three courses. And then the our course is the third link. Um, it's easy to access. It's free. Um, if you have a, a Quad AI uh, account, you can log in. Uh, and access content that way. If you don't have a Quad AI account, you can get one freely, um, register for a free account, and then access the course freely that way as well. Excellent. Well, I'd like to hear another another pitch and, and listen to this angle that I'm coming at you with, Dr. Ryder. As you know, and everybody listening knows, that if you get board certified in allergy immunology, we go through our fellowship training program, we take our board exam, and we're very proficient in allergic and immunologic conditions. However, the vast majority of us, when we go into clinical practice, uh, we spend the bulk of our time really helping patients with allergic conditions, and, and many of us find it challenging to keep up with the latest evidence surrounding immune deficiency. I can attest to that. Uh, I'm so deep in the weeds in regards to food allergy, they don't even let me take care of patients with <laughs> <laughs> immune deficiency around here. So what would you say to somebody like myself as to why this course is important? Well, I, I think we're constantly learning, right? No single individual can know it all. And just like science is a team sport, um, clinical care is a team sport. And so I lean on my colleagues who are food allergy experts to, to make sure that I'm telling the patients the right things about oral immunotherapy and, and what's available and what's coming down the pike. So I think, you know, for all of us, um, we're in continual improvement mindset, continual learning mindset. So I think having a... Um, kind of, if you will, a bite-sized uh, program like this. It's really focused on um, not only the patient's voice, but just the best ways to recognize patients with immunological disorders. And then, hey, getting credit for your efforts, um, you know, it, it's just kind of a win all the way around. So I think the more that we can provide this kind of content um, in a way that's easy and accessible for people to access, that's, that's high yield, but also um, high impact and I think attractive from a learner perspective, it's just gonna it's gonna make us all better clinicians. Um, it's certainly gonna improve our patients' um, you know outcomes and well being, which is what we're all you know doing this for, of course. And I know I know you share that passion as well. Mm -hmm. No, I like that easy, accessible, high yield, high impact. Uh, sounds great to me. Well, walk us through what people can expect when they sign up for this course. Is it a series of videos or there's just articles that people are directed to read on their own? Uh, will there be tests involved? Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. So this is active, active learning. Um, there's actually uh, five modules, if you will. The first actually, the first just measures your existing knowledge um, you know, through a series of questions. Um, that, that relate to diagnosis of primary immune deficiency or inborn error of immunity. 
The second one is um, learning signs and symptoms of prior immune deficiency disorders. Um, you know, where, where again, you're pointed towards resources that that could help you if you if you don't know or if you you want to learn more um, about the variety of, of signs and symptoms relative to this uh, this disease entity. And then the, the third the third module I think is really exciting, and this was one that um, my colleague, our colleague Victoria Dimitriades at, at uh, UC Davis, um, really you know worked on um, very hard with Kenneth Paris, Dr. Paris, who's at LSU. Um, this is really focused on the best ways to utilize telehealth for PID patient care. Um, I think there's not a lot of great things that have come out of the pandemic, but one thing that's been really outstanding is how we've all learned to spin up technology uh, to be, become more nimble. Um, so I think you know that module will help really kind of carefully just call out which patients might be best served by telehealth and which patients within the PIDD IEI spectrum, um, you know, wouldn't be best served via telehealth. And then the fourth, um, uh, the fourth module is really on diagnosis. The, the last two are, are case-based. So the, the first case is really a focus on um, kind of a bread and butter uh, patient with PIDD focused uh, on reaching primary care physicians who may not be you know, thinking about these types of patients on a regular basis at all. And that's fair, given the, the breadth of uh, what they, you know, what they manage in their office and their clinics and the hospitals. And then the last module is a case that's really focused on um, a complex immunological disorder um, that, that's really um, aimed at allergist immunologists and specialists who, who care for these patients. Uh, and did people have to take some sort of exam at the end of it to show that they um, learned anything or that they increased their baseline knowledge or anything like that? Yes, there is assessment throughout, um, starting with the measure of uh, existing knowledge and then um, asking questions about the cases. So the cases are, are very dynamic. Um, you know, again, I, I think um, both AxDev and our colleagues, uh, the Quad AI, had deep, deep insight into educational programming um, and instructional design. So, uh, you know, assessment is embedded throughout. It's not like you get all of this material and then at the end you've got 100 questions uh, to answer. Uh, the mm -hmm. questions are really kind of peppered in throughout the content. Um, and then interestingly, when you finish, so, so in order, I'll just, I'll just lead into um, you know, how do you get credit? Um, once you've completed the ex measuring your existing knowledge, the signs and symptoms module and the telehealth module, then you pick one or two, one of two or both of the, the diagnostic cases. Then you have a period of, of 30 days where you, take what you've learned and apply that knowledge um, in the clinical arena uh, to mm -hmm. your own practice. Um, and then after that 30 days, you have a questionnaire to fill out that will allow you to get um, part four mock credit uh, through the ABAI. And that also you know, falls into the um, practice improvement, quality improvement, um, uh, 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 I wouldn't say mandate, but requirement that, that I think is every five years. Okay, so you can get part four maintenance of certification credit. And then you also mentioned, can people get CME as well or, or continuing education credit if they don't need the MOC? Yep, they can. They can get two category one AMA credits for this activity. Okay, and remind me again, Dr. Ryder, how much does this course cost? It is free, F-R-E-E, -E, free. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> people literally, they can't afford not to do it is what I'm hearing you say. That is correct, that is correct. <laughs> Um, you mentioned, I like the, the aspect on telehealth specifically. Um, was that included in the survey by any chance, just out of curiosity? Did, uh, did the patients reply or, or comment that they um, lacked 
uh, timely access to specialist care, or was that not part of the initial survey? Um, we didn't ask specific questions about about telehealth, but we did we did ask about access in general and um, just ways to facilitate um, you know exploring the range of symptoms and um, and and just you know assessing whether someone has uh, PIDD. So mm -hmm. um, the 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 one the one question that was more telehealth specific was just really. Um, you know, whether the patients perceived any benefit at all with it, because so many had actually experienced it. And, and really 60% said that they had limited benefit with telehealth. So that led to that module. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. I, you know, a lot of these main immunology centers and academic centers in major cities, and of course, a lot of our patients don't live in that same geographic location. So access to care is going to be a big part of, of everything we provide along these realms. So I'm really uh, intrigued that you included that as part of this course, which is great. Uh, all right, so let's say that I sign up for the course. Do I have to complete everything in one sitting, or can I save my work and return later? You can absolutely save your work as you go along and uh, work on it when you have time and come back to it. All right, so it sounds, again, just um, very easy to facilitate uh, your learning as you go through this. What are the learning objectives for the course? So, I mean, really we're focused principally on um, on raising awareness. Um, so first of all, first and foremost, we want to reduce the period of time that the, the number of patients um, are experiencing, you know, in symptom onset to diagnosis. And then, you know, really kind of calling out pattern recognition um, and scenarios that you know, would alert a healthcare provider, um, even a specialist that this patient might have truly have PIDD. Um, and then, you know, a, a big part of the course really points to additional tools and resources that are out there. So we don't see this as complete one-stop shopping. Um, certainly, we want to point to other valuable resources that are out there in terms of treating, managing um, across the range of physical and mental health. And then um, just to update people's knowledge uh, about uh, these disorders and, um, you know, again, point them to, to references that will be updated iteratively over time so that they can, you know, keep up with this. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned the different types of modules. I'd like to ask about the diagnostic modules specifically. What kind of, what type of information is provided there? Uh, do you walk people through, you know, what tests to order based upon these symptoms or tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, we do. We do. We get into mm -hmm. both imaging as well as laboratory testing, first line, second line, um, and genetic testing. Uh, we speak to all of those and kind of their uh, their strengths and weaknesses and some of the the gotcha you know caveats um, mm -hmm. even in particular to genetic testing because that can be incredibly helpful but it can also lead to more questions in terms of you know variants of uncertain significance that can and inevitably will pop up um, in these evaluations so you know we really tried to make this um, hit all of the major um, you know, testing modalities that a clinician would, would need to utilize um, as they're evaluating a patient with a suspected uh, PIIEI. Mm, okay. And once somebody completes all the modules, what happens after that? Do they automatically get their MOC certificate or does the ABAI the, uh, have to process and notify participants? Do you have any insight in, in regards to the next steps after that? Yeah, I know that um, for the for the Mach four credits, uh, Part four credits, um, that once you once you complete the modules and then the uh, thirty days of assessment, then you you will fill out a form. There's a PDF form to fill out, which then um, 
is submitted to the quad AI and then we'll we'll you'll see that you'll see the Mach 4 credit show up on your your own individual portal. Um, I believe the two category the category one AMA credits are I know we attest to those you know somehow under an honor system so you, you'll get a certificate and you can upload that but I believe that will also be posted to your ABI ABAI um, portal. Okay. And out of curiosity, and it's completely okay if you don't have any information on this, but any, uh, are you tracking any data in regards to how many people have completed the course thus far or received credit or anything like that? I know it just yeah. launched within the last 60 days or so, so it's pretty early in the process. Terrific, terrific question. No, absolutely. Because this, the, you know, the launch of the course was the culmination of the last 12 months worth of work, but actually we, we are going to monitor the output uh, of the, the course, how it's used. Uh, we're going to calculate and collect metrics on um, all of the modules uh, and, the, and the feedback. And our hope is that, you know, by early 2022, we'll have enough data to uh, present an abstract at an annual meeting, um, share the findings uh, and output and the utility of the course with colleagues. Um, and then ultimately, we hope to publish a manuscript um, really around this educational offering and the outcomes that have uh, stemmed from it. I think that's great. It's, it with such a novel educational tool that you've developed here, I think that's an, an important part of it, of you know the impact that it actually has on us uh, as clinicians who actually take the course. Are you, uh, do you solicit feedback from uh, people, from participants within the course, or are there ways that they can offer comments or anything like that? I believe there is. Um, you know, I, I think at the end of the course and throughout, there is an opportunity for people to, to provide feedback in that way. Um, I know at the end of the course there is. I mean, again, I'll just call out the fact that this is a partnership. Quad AI, Immune Deficiency Foundation, and AxDev, who people may have not heard of, uh, really focused on uh, performance improvement and educational research. So, you know, bringing, you know, domain experts such as allergists and immunologists to the table with a tip of the spear patient organization like the Immune Deficiency Foundation and then a, a you know, per performance improvement organization like AxDev, I think really enabled this. Uh, to happen in such a short period of time. That's great. Uh, and for those who have very strong negative feelings about it, can we just give them your cell phone number now for them to call you? <laughs> Absolutely. Let me give that to you. One, two, three, dot. <laughs> no, but seriously, we would, we would uh, for sure covet people's feedback um, because I think at the end of the day, it has to be useful. It has to be accessible. I mean, it has to be time efficient for people. Um, you know, as you know, you know so well also that, that there's so many demands on, on healthcare providers' times. And, um, you know, we want to get the credit, of course, but at the end of the day, we really want to improve the health and well-being of our patients. So, you know, if, if, if folks are not finding this to be useful and we will have embedded metrics that will allow us to glean that um, on the back end, um, we'll, we'll make changes. We'll make changes. We'll, you know, if needed, we'll relaunch. But I think people will be happy with the content. I think they'll be happy with the interactive of nature. But yes, you can give my cell phone and my email. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was uh, talking to some colleagues about this as we start to emerge from our cocoons over the last 18 months during the pandemic and start to attend live medical conferences and, you know, getting our, our education uh, in the traditional manner of sort of sitting in a didactic presentation for 60 or 90 minutes. Uh, <laughs> I, I wonder how many of us are going to struggle with that. Uh, we've used to, we've been used to these virtual formats or, you know, move at your own pace, like the course that you developed. Do you have any, do you have any thoughts on that? Are you looking forward to sitting in a room for eight hours at a time or <laughs> do you think we'll find some, some hybrid or some balance there? 
Well, I'll, I'll give you a little insight into myself. I, I've actually never been a brick and mortar student fan. I mean, I think if I could have dropped out of high school, got my GD, GED and, and learned a trade and, and then gone on to, you know, college, you know, without having to go to class. I was one of those people who, who didn't go to class in medical school very often just because I, I don't really learn well by sitting in a classroom. So I can definitely attest to uh, having difficulties sitting for prolonged periods of time in a, in a classroom. It just doesn't jive well for me. And I think it doesn't for a lot of people. So I think, you know, content like this that is, you know, of high value um, that you can, you know, take in whatever bite size you want, uh, come back and and, uh, and access the content, I think is going to be awesome. But I, I think, you know, I miss the in-person meetings tremendously. I miss the networking opportunities just like everyone. And I, I'm really anxious to get back to that. But I'm hoping that, you know, Content like this, um, as well as you know, obviously all of the organizations, the, the academy, the college, clinical immunology society, and on and on, have had to be nimble, right, to to mm -hmm. you know keep things going through the pandemic. So I'm I'm hopeful that we'll be able to ascertain you know the content that, that's best delivered, it you know kind of directly in, in lecture format, and and that which could be you know conveyed uh, much more effectively you know in other means. Yeah, no, I'd be curious to see how this changes moving forward. I'm just bummed that we have to go back to wearing pants again. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. I, that's what I say to my, my wife and kids. You know, I love being in clinic, but, you know, I have to go put, put pants on and look like a normal person <laughs> from, the, from, the, from the waist down, you know. So, <laughs> so I gotta, it's like it's that time of the week again when I have to wear pants. Yeah. 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 Oh, my gosh. <laughs> what? Um, in your opinion, as an expert in uh, primary immune deficiency and born errors of immunity, uh, and as a member of the steering committee for this educational program, what do you think is the most important area that uh, allergists and immunologists can, can improve upon regarding primary immune deficiency or inborn errors of immunity? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty biased because I've focused so heavily on uh, recognizing signs and symptoms. I, th I think I think that is number one because, I, yeah, my pathology professor in medical school used to say, you know, quote unquote, easy to, to diagnose and treat if you think of it. And, you know, I know that it's not always easy to treat these disorders, but it is a whole lot easier to treat once we know what we're dealing with. And it's certainly a lot easier for patients uh, once they have a name for this, this condition and even can go and research and be advocates for themselves. So I think the recognition piece is, is huge. But I think that's not all. Not, not it's not all on the healthcare provider. I mean, health systems really need to be refined to enable um, diagnosis of patients with PIIEI and you know any other type of, of disorder, as well as really track outcomes of quality in rational ways. So I think we need to, you know, sure we need to do our part, um, but health systems really need to be hammered into. Um, you know, patient and clinician friendly environments that that facilitate outcomes for patients. Mm. I'm not surprised to hear you say that. And I'd love to spend the last couple of minutes talking a little bit more about your very unique uh, career and area of interest. So can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in informatics and using big data sets to derive new knowledge and understanding? Where did that uh, originate from? Yeah, you know, um, my, my career has been uh, and trajectory has been anything but linear. Uh, mm. So I, I got to Texas Children's Hospital about seven years ago. And, and in large part, that was because my uh, my tremendous friend and mentor, Jordan Orange, was our section chief at the time. Um, and so he played a, a major role in, in recruiting me here. But 
You know, in addition to Jordan, uh, what I saw here and what I see at many great children's hospitals such as yours is this this infrastructure that's in place um, to enable diagnosis and improvement of outcomes for patients because we've got, you know, our own health plan. And we've got, of course, an electronic medical record and we've got inpatient and outpatient services and we've got, you know, maybe an enterprise data warehouse or other ways to capture the data that we're, you know, we're, we're acquiring in, in, at a terabyte level, you know, every month. Um, so, you know, I, I got to, to TCH and said, wow, you know, this is an incredible opportunity. And so, you know, Jordan, being an amazing mentor, uh, was instrumental in um, helping me see that, you know, there was a, a possibility to partner with our health plan at, at Texas Children's Hospital. And so we launched a pilot project with the Jeffrey Modell Foundation to utilize their spirit analyzer, which is the software for primary immune deficiency uh, recognition, intervention, and tracking that really allows very rapid ascertainment using claims data that we have all over the place in healthcare um, as to a, a risk score for, for patients who may have immune deficiency. So that was my entree into kind of big data. Um, I'd always been a bit of a data junkie and that I, I loved analyzing, you know, smaller data sets for publication, but that was the first time I really got my hands on a very large data set. And, and it was this partnership with the Jeffrey Modell Foundation, um, you know, our section, in immunology, allergy, and retrovirology at TCH, and then the Texas Children's Health Plan. And again, you know, the, the teamwork that ensued there to ultimately culminate in a paper that showed that, you know, spirit analyzer could be used to, to kind of drill down on a, a cohort of patients from several hundred thousand to a smaller group that may have immunological dysfunction. And that really opened my eyes. And it, and it made me, you know, really feel very passionate about um, learning the skills of clinical informatics and data science so that as a, as a clinical immunologist, I could use these tools and skill sets and, um, you know, to, to drive improvements in this patient population. Oh, that's really interesting. You know, our, our family just watched the movie Free Guy uh, starring Ryan Reynolds yesterday, which is about artificial intelligence, and it's a, kind of a fun take on that. So along those lines of what you just described, do you, do you foresee a role of artificial intelligence uh, in sort of the work that you're doing and trying to assist the, the diagnosis, especially if there's such this long lag time between presentation and diagnosis for uh, inborn areas of immunity? And if, if you do see a role of artificial intelligence, do you think it will look anything like Ryan Reynolds? <laughs> that's awesome. I have not seen Free Guy. I need to see that, honestly. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm glad you brought that up. So absolutely, I do. I do think artificial intelligence and augmented intelligence, um, you know, will have a tremendous role in healthcare. I mean, we're seeing, for sure, research realm, um, you know, publications and use cases be, be proved in the, in the research arenas um, using a variety of approaches, artificial intelligence approaches. And we have the one paper out, another, a second paper where we, we, we utilized uh, AI to build kind of a risk stratification tool for, for patients with uh, suspected immunological disorders and, um, and are now working on a, a big data pipeline that ultimately will be uh, freely available, free open source code um, for any health system to be able to leverage to, to take you know, claims data and, uh, and ascertain you know, which patients may, may be um, at high, highest risk for IEI. So I think having these types of technologies run in the background and having, you know, care teams that have insight into, you know, which patients most be, might be most likely to have these kinds of disorders to, 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 to look at the output 
as well as having domain expertise to build them, you know, from the ground up is really vital. So I think we're going to see more and more across every domain of, of healthcare with utilization of computational methodologies and artificial intelligence. And, you know, what it's going to look like is um, hopefully it's going to look like a uh, an electronic health record that that's more dynamic and maybe more like uh, interacting with, uh, you know, with, with Amazon or, or something like mm-hmm. that, where, where, you know, helpful suggestions are made uh, in lockstep with a patient visit. Um, and things are pulled to our fingertips, you know, kind of pushed to our fingertips, if you will, that are, that are more useful than kind of combing through tab after tab after tab of the electronic health records. So I think we're starting to see this. So, so I think, you know, all of those um, types of uh, functionality are, are starting to pop up and I think they're going to become, you know, more useful and they're going to, going to make the patient and the provider experience, I think, uh, much better, higher quality. Oh, I, I surely hope that's the case, without a doubt. Now, I, I have to ask, what happens in the Rider Lab? Uh, <laughs> I, I envisioned you, you know, scooting around on a hoverboard, everybody wearing VR headsets. <laughs> Is this like going to Google's campus or some tech startup in Silicon Valley, or can you can you show us a little peek behind the curtains there? Yeah, I wish it looked that cool. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, the, the nice thing about, quote unquote, my lab is my lab is, is my, um, you know, my laptop tethered to a GPU server <laughs> that's behind a, a firewall um, oh. so, so that I can you know, I can analyze data securely, but you know, what, what my lab is, it's really about the people. Um, so, um, you know, what we do is, you know, for example, um, in addition to what we've already kind of shared a little bit about, you know, when the pandemic hit, I mean, clinical operations basically shut down. So uh, for a short period of time until we, we spun up, you know, getting, you know, PPE and telehealth and so forth in place so we could take care of these patients safely. Um, you know, so during that time we said, well, we looked at one another and said, hey, what can we do to help out with the pandemic? And so, you know, one of my colleagues is a biostatistician, one, of the, one is an epidemiologist. Um, and so we said, well, let's uh, let's see what's out there in the public domain. And we, we pulled data sets from the New York Times GitHub on all the COVID cases. And uh, we, we merged census data and we um, tried to infer at the county level across every county in the U.S., of which there are 3,000. I didn't know that prior to this project. Mm-hmm. Uh, which counties were at highest risk based on case fatality rate and um, and what, what were some of the features, you know, that, that kind of lended themselves to risk. And so, you know, we look for opportunities to make the world a better place, in particular for patients with uh, infectious disease, uh, inborn errors of immunity in particular, but patients across the allergic immunologic spectrum. So, you know, we have another uh, food allergy project that we'll be launching soon. So, you know, it's very dynamic, this, um, the Chili Lab. That's why I actually like to call it Chili better than the Rider Lab, because the Rider Lab sounds like it's, it's, it's me. Um, but Chili, it's more about the team and bringing in the people that, um, with the skill sets that are needed for that particular project, whether it's, you know, data science and uh, data visualization, uh, artificial intelligence or statistical work, um, or clinical informatics or our uh, information services colleagues who can, you know, pull the data out of our enterprise data warehouse and, and provide us with the data sets that we analyze. So it's, you know, it's a very dynamic environment. Um, we're still growing as we get funding. Um, and as we get more funding, of course, we, we want to add to the team. Um, we we want to have students, uh, graduate students, fellows, which we do have some, but we want to have a greater number. So it's, it's really about the team building the skill set across the team, but pulling the people in who have an interest 
um, from really a, a mission-oriented perspective towards using these big data sets to ultimately help the patient in, in a quick turnaround. I think that's great, and I appreciate you taking the time to um, explore upon that a little bit further because it's very unique in our specialty and really in medicine in general, and I think it lends itself extremely well uh, to the conversation about the primary immune deficiency course that you helped um, be a part of with the steering committee. Now, as we wrap up here, uh, your brain very clearly works differently than mine, and I'm sure many others, and I'd love to ask a quick series of questions to better appreciate who Dr. Nick Ryder is. Are you game? <laughs> I'm up for it. Shoot. All right. Nothing too, nothing too uh, troublesome, I promise. First <laughs> up, do you use Apple products or Android? So I've been a big Apple fan since 1994, and I do go to Android and PC when I have to, but I, I got I to gotta give uh, Apple props. I love their, I love their stuff. Okay. Are you left-handed or right-handed? I'm a righty. All right. And if you had a free evening, do you Netflix and chill, catch up on journal articles, or read a good book? So definitely in football season or playoff season, especially if my one of my Philadelphia-based teams is playing, I'm locked to the tube on that. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, you know, as a passionate uh, sufferer of Philadelphia sports, I'm <laughs> I'm locked on on that. But otherwise, I'm an outdoor enthusiast. So you know, I spend so much of my time, like so much, so many of us, in front of the computer, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's with my research or patient care. So I like to get outside and get on my bike, um, get out in nature. That really charges my batteries. Oh, great! All right, last one. When it comes to your favorite indulgences, do you prefer sweet or salty? Hmm. Why choose, right? Um, I, I love dark <laughs> chocolate, but I'm also a savory, salty person. So I, I, I do like I do like both. Um, but, you know, 60% of my diet is peanut butter since I'm a huge peanut butter fan. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. You survived. I appreciate you uh, you playing along and sharing that with us. Hey, That's Dr. Great. Thank you. Oh yeah, no, I think this has been great, and uh, we'll we'll put uh, links in the show notes for uh, anybody who uh, didn't catch the website. But can you remind us again one more time? Uh, well, two things. One is what is the cost for the the course? So the course is free. All right, and where can people find it? At education.quadai.org, and then go to the immunodeficiency link, and then click on click on the link providing enhanced medical support for patients with primary immunodeficiency disorders. Okay. And again, we'll put all this in our show notes as well. Dr. Ryder, thank you so much. This has been very informative. I truly appreciate you taking the time. Do you have any last words before we depart? Dr. Stugas, always a pleasure. Thanks for all the great work you do. And thanks for having me on. Great to chat with you. Oh, likewise. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcasts through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.